Well, good morning, church. I'm Dave Parsons. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills, and it's a great, great privilege for me to be able to open up the word to you today. And if you're here visiting with us today, we just want to let you know we're so glad you can be here. Those that may be watching online, we're glad you could join us. And as Bill mentioned earlier in the um, announcements, um, we got 30 days of prayer coming up during the Ramadan. There are uh, in the information booth, there are uh, brochures that you can pick up, prayer guides for a $3 donation. And also, Larry's mentioned this before, but we have a Golden Hills family that serves in a sensitive part of the world, and they're actually having a meet, eat, and greet on June 11th, and they're selling tickets for that dinner afterwards. So I would encourage you to, um, to consider maybe going to that. That'd be a wonderful thing, too. And I just want to say this. What about the Warriors? Isn't that something? You know, I also want to say that the Sharks and the Giants are doing really well, too. And, you know, the A's are pretty good. Did I cover all the bases? <laughs> but before we open up God's Word, would you just bow with me uh, for prayer again? Lord, such a privilege to be able to look into your Word for a few minutes. There's so much in there, Lord. I just pray that your spirit will take what you want and apply it to each one of our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Francis Chan, who was here at our church a couple of weeks ago with his wife, Lisa, wrote a book called Forgotten God. And in that book, he said, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for him to come through. I don't believe God wants me or any of his children to live in a way that makes sense from the world's perspective, a way I know I can manage. I believe he is calling me and all of us to depend on him for living in a way that cannot be mimicked or forged. He wants us to walk and step with his spirit rather than depend solely on the raw talent and knowledge he's given us. A question I need to continually ask myself is, 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 do I live my life in the power of the Holy Spirit? Can my life be explained by merely the work of one man? How about you? Are you living your life in the power of the Holy Spirit? Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the most loved chapters in the entire Bible. Warren Wiersbe points out it also has a strong emphasis on the Spirit, where he's mentioned 19 times throughout this chapter. So this morning during this message, I'd just like to go through Romans 8, the first part of it, and just show you some of the wonderful truths that are there. First of all, Paul points out the freedom of the Spirit. He says, in, in verse 1 of chapter 8, that we are free from condemnation. Notice he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to ask, what's it there for? It's there because earlier in chapter 7, Paul said this. Look at Romans 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I, what, what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, 
It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And then verse 24 and 25, he says, What a wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation means a judgment against someone. You see, in Adam, we're all condemned. In Christ, there is no condemnation. That's why in Romans 5, 12, 15, and 16, Paul said this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift of that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. People, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus are justified and declared righteous. Pastor Aaron Roy, who's spoken this pulpit before, he's a pastor of one of our sister churches, put it this way. It is the reversal of God's attitude toward the sinner. God formerly rightfully condemned us for our sin, but now he vindicates. We who were once under God's wrath are now under God's blessing. Amen? That's why our Lord would say in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Charles Wesley summed it up so well in his wonderful hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. What a joy to know that you are free from condemnation. But Paul goes on to explain the means of the freedom here in verse 2 and 3. Look at what he says. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. The law of sin and death Sin is what produces death. We don't have the power on our own to overcome sin. We are enslaved by it. In contrast, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at, at the moment of salvation, regenerates us and gives us new life. It's aorist tense here. It's a one-time action. So how does the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death? Well, let me illustrate it for you. 
I assume that most of you have been on an airplane sometime in your life. I'm always amazed when I witness an enormous jet flying from an airport going through the air. My wife and I were um, at Pacifica on Friday. We were eating our lunch by the ocean and jets were flying over us from SFO and I was watching them and again I was amazed. How can something so large and heavy remain airborne? As you know, God has made certain laws in the universe. One of those laws is the law of gravity. Drop something and it'll fall to the ground. If you jump off a high bridge, you'll fall to your death. The law of gravity is kind of like the law of sin and death. It pulls us down. We are continually under its influence. On the other hand, God has created another law called the law of aerodynamics. If you get into an airplane, you can overcome the law of gravity by the law of aerodynamics. It doesn't eliminate the law of gravity. It just overcomes it with another law. Do you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 8? The law of the Spirit sets you free from the law of sin and death. In the same way the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity, the law of the Spirit overcomes the law of sin and death. That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 3, he says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. People, if you kept the law perfectly, you could save yourself. But because of the sinful nature dwelling in us, we can't keep the law. Have you ever tried to keep the speed limit perfectly? I did it once for two minutes. You know you shouldn't criticize others, but what do you do? You criticize others. Jesus said, even if you lust in your mind, you're committing adultery in your heart. When you're in a museum and you see that sign that says, don't touch the exhibit, what do you do? You look around, are there any guards around? I just got to try it out. <laughs> Our relationships break up because of sin. You can't keep the law perfectly. I was sharing with the men at men's breakfast about a man who asked his wife, if I won the lottery, what would you do? She said, I'd probably take half of it and leave you. <laughs> he said, okay, I won $12 yesterday. Here's $6. Keep in touch. <laughs> no, no matter how hard we try, we can't keep the law because we have a sinful nature. That's why Paul testified in Romans 7, 7 to 11. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So what the law was powerless to do, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Notice Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man. He had no sin, and for that reason, he qualified to be our Savior. That's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Peter would write in 1 Peter 3, 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. People, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty, which is death, for our sins so we could be free and live. And notice the reason for the freedom. The last part of verse 3 and verse 4. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Jesus condemns sin. The Greek word here for condemned is katakrino. It refers both to the pronouncement of judgment and the carrying out of the sentence. You see, Jesus fully carried out the sentence for sin and he paid for it himself on the cross. Then he gives us the power to obey him. Warren Wearsby explains it in this way. The believer lives a righteous life, not in the power of the law, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The law does not have the power to produce holiness. It can only reveal and condemn sin. But the indwelling Holy Spirit enables you to walk in obedience to God's will. Now, people, you need to realize that our salvation is in process. We're saved at the point we receive Christ, but we're growing to become more like Christ. It's called sanctification. So Paul goes on to talk about the battle between the flesh and the spirit here in verses 5 through 8. First of all, he talks about those who live according to the sinful nature. They have their minds set on what that nature desires. Look at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. It's a present tense. That is, they habitually set their hearts and minds on what the sin nature desires. Ephesians 4, 17 to, 18, or 17 to 19, Paul said this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. For example, did you know that pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry? Statistics published on October 22, 2015 by Jeff Logue on Thought HUB said men admitting to accessing porn at work, 20%. U.S. adults who regularly visit internet pornography websites, 40 million. Christians who said pornography is a major problem in the home, 47%. And adults admitting to internet sexual addiction, 10%. 
You see, when you have your mind set on the, on the sin nature, the things of the sin nature, Paul goes on to say it results in death. Look at verse 6 with me, the first part. The mind of sinful man is death. It leads to death physically and spiritually. There's no connection with God. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he'd say, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Paul Lee Tan relates how the renowned atheist and skeptic of Christianity, Voltaire, on his deathbed addressed his doctor. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months' life. The doctor replied, you, Sir, you cannot live six weeks. Voltaire replied, Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me. Soon after, he expired. The, the mind of sinful man is death. It's also hostile to God. Look at verse 7 of Romans 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. You look around at our society and you wonder why people do what they do. They are living, conducting their lives according to the sinful nature. Furthermore, they cannot please God. Romans 8.8 8. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. It doesn't mean that they cannot do some good. But when your life is controlled by the sinful nature, you cannot please God. That's why writing to the Galatians, Paul would say in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. But I want you to see the contrast here. Look at those who live according to the Spirit. They set their minds on what the Spirit desires. Look at the second part of verse 5. It says, But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Once again, this is the present tense. Set your mind and heart on what the Spirit desires. How do you set your mind and heart on what the Spirit desires? You spend time reading, listening to, studying, meditating on the Bible. You spend time worshiping the Lord with God's people, singing, praising. You spend time in prayer. You know, one of the, my favorite times of the day is the first thing in the morning when I get up and I spend about an hour with the Lord in the scriptures and in prayer. The other morning I looked, I woke up and it was 5.15 and my body says, you don't want to get up, but my spirit said, Lord, I want to get up and spend some time with you. Furthermore, there's a willingness to follow his promptings, daily surrender. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Furthermore, the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Look at verse 6, the last part of it. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. When your life is controlled by the Spirit, it results in life and peace. It results in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's a wonderful couple in our church, George and Susan Schmidt. Susan has been battling with cancer over the last two years. I love to read her blogs on Caring Bridge because she is a woman whose mind is on the spirit and I see life and peace. Just recently, she wrote this and she gave me permission to share it with you. She said, what an amazing two-year journey this has been. The cancer diagnosis I received two years ago is not what anybody ever wants to hear. But I'm living proof of God's faithfulness as I've watched his story unfold in me. Jesus told his followers in Matthew 6, 27, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? None of us can. So I plan to not worry and to continue living every day with a joy and a triumphant spirit. And whenever life becomes scary and uncertain, I will remember that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Run, Susan, run. I will remember that I am greatly blessed, highly favored, imperfect but forgiven child of God. That is the way to victory. Amen. You know, amen. Paul goes on in this passage and he gives us the evidence of the Spirit in your life. First of all, he points out that the Holy Spirit lives inside you, that the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. When a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit to live within us when he was talking to his disciples in the upper room. In John 14, 15 to 18, he said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promised he'd send the spirit to us. Addressing the Corinthian church, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Since the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer, they are given new life. My wife and I have an opportunity to support a ministry family in Turkey. We met them in 2008 when we were in Turkey. A while back, they led a young man to the Lord, and now he's in a Turkish prison. And in a recent newsletter to us, they said this. We received a letter from a young prisoner that another man became a Christian in the jail. That made nine prisoners who are believers in the jail, but they are facing pressure because of their faith. 
The jail coordinators separated the Christians to different jails in other cities to try to prevent them from sharing the gospel and worshiping together. Now the nine Christian prisoners are in four different jails. What do you think God's going to do now? <laughs> the Spirit working through them. But you know, Paul points out here that the unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, the second part. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Paul makes it very clear that one of the marks of a true believer is that they possess the Holy Spirit. If there's no evidence in your life of the Holy Spirit's presence, then perhaps you don't belong to God. Because Romans 8, 16 says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 1 John 4, 13 states, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So you may be asking, Pastor Dave, how do I know if I have the spirit of God in my life? Well, what are some of the marks of the spirit in your life? Let me just give you a few of them. Life change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we do baptisms, we ask for testimonies, and one of the questions is, in what way has your life changed since Christ's come into your life? Spiritual fruit. Do you see any spiritual fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now again, we're all in process, right? You may have a little bit of love, a little bit of patience. When you go to the DMV, you may not have very much, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Internal witness, Romans 8, 17. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then love for God and others. Do you have a love for God? Do you have a love for others? 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us not love one another, or let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is one of the signs that the Spirit's in you. Paul goes on to tell us that the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual life in verses 10 and 11. Look at it. Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. As believers, eventually our mortal bodies will die. Because of sin, eventually we will all die physically. But the good news is that your spirit is alive. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your sins and he, he gave you his righteousness. John Whitmer, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, explains. He says, because of God's imputed righteousness, a believer is alive spiritually. The eternal spiritual life of God is implanted by the indwelling Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ here and now, even though a believer's body is mortal. Furthermore, we have hope of a future bodily resurrection. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is also living in us, and he will resurrect our bodies at the resurrection. That's why writing to the Philippians, Paul would say this. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. C.S. Lewis, the renowned British author, once said, even the most humble, unbecoming believer will in the resurrection become such a person that if you were to meet him on the street today, you would be tempted to bow down and worship him. Amen? Furthermore, Paul says the Holy Spirit leads you in the ways of righteousness. You must make a choice. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. People, every day you have to make many choices. Will you yield to the power of the sinful nature and allow it to control your life? Or will you yield to the Spirit and allow Him to control your life? Every morning, I pray a prayer of surrender to the Holy Spirit, which I got from Pastor Chuck Swindoll in one of our discovery classes a few years ago. Here's the prayer. This is your day, Lord. I want to be at your disposal. I want to be your tool, your vessel today. I can't make it happen. Without you, I can accomplish nothing. And so I'm saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit today. We have an obligation to live according to the spirit. And notice the consequences of that choice in verse 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Billy Graham, in his excellent book, The Holy Spirit, tells a story of an Eskimo fisherman who came to town every Saturday afternoon. He always brought his two dogs with him. One was white and the other was black. He had taught them to fight on command. Every Saturday afternoon in the town square, the people would gather and these two dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets. On one Saturday, the black dog would win. Another Saturday, the white dog would win. But the fishermen always won. His friends began to ask him how he did it. He said, I starve one and I feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he's stronger. If you live by the sinful nature, God says you will die. The soul who sins is the one who will die, Ezekiel 18.20. The, the first part of Romans 3.23 says the wages of sin is death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What does this mean? When you yield to the sinful nature, it results in death. Not necessarily eternal death, but it affects your relationship with God and the enjoyment of his presence in your life. When you give yourself over to the Spirit, He empowers you and He enables you to have victory over the sinful nature. That's why Paul would write in Galatians 5.16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Furthermore, Paul says that the Holy Spirit gives us assurance that we are God's children. We are led by the Spirit. Look at Romans 8, 14. Because, because those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. A week ago Friday, I was on my way to a wedding rehearsal, 
in another town. I know the town, but I don't know it real well. And I wasn't sure the address or where the rehearsal was. So I put it in my GPS and I got to the street. And in my mind, I thought, no, it's over. I need to turn right. It's over here. But the GPS said, no, you need to turn left. So I followed the GPS and it took me right to the address. Now, you know the GPS isn't always right. But I want to tell you something, people. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate GPS. The Holy Spirit often leads us in the way he wants us to go. He uses a variety of means to do this. He speaks to us through the inspired word of God. He speaks to us through godly people. Sometimes he prompts us to move in a certain direction. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in our lives. He may lead us to give to someone in need. He may prompt us to stop and pray for someone. Sometimes he will lead us to help someone in need. Sometimes he will prompt us to share our faith with someone. Sometimes he will move you out of your comfort zone into new areas of service for him. Henry and Melvin Blackaby in their book, Experiencing the Spirit, challenge our thinking with these questions as they relate to the Spirit's leading in our lives. Is the Holy Spirit moving you out of your comfort zone into the Father's will? Are you doing anything that requires faith? Are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit, a power that's beyond your natural abilities? Perhaps the Lord is calling you this morning to a new sphere of service. Listen to him. Be led by him. But then Paul ends this passage with just a wonderful assurance. The Spirit assures us that we are children of God. Look at verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are not treated as slaves, but as God's dear children. When we were slaves to sin and death, we had no joy, no assurance of being in relationship with God. But when we come to Christ and believe in him and receive him, we become a child of God and the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children. We are born into the family. We are born again. That's why John would say in John 1, 12 and 13, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. But you know, we're also adopted into God's family. The Greek word for sonship is adoption. I have two adopted sons. The linguistic key to the Greek New Testament says this word indicates a new family relation with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities. The Spirit testifies of our incredible privileges as children of God. For instance, we have access to our Heavenly Father. Verse 15 again. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. We have a loving, intimate relationship with God through the Spirit. We cry, Abba, Father. In 1992, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Israel we were at the Jerusalem Hilton Hotel. We were getting on the elevator, and a young Israeli family got on with us. And there was a little boy who was about three years old. He's holding on to his dad's pant leg. And he was saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. 
Not only do we have an intimate relationship with our Abba, Father, but we have access to him now. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, illustrates our privilege of access to God in this way. He said, no visitor could expect to barge into the Oval Office to see president without an appointment. There are exceptions. During John F. Kennedy's administration, photographers sometimes captured a winsome scene. Seated around the president's desk in gray suits, cabinet members are debating matters of world consequence, such as the Cuban, mission, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Meanwhile, a toddler, a two-year-old John John, crawls atop the huge presidential desk, oblivious to White House protocol and the weighty matters of state. John John was simply visiting his daddy, and sometimes, to his father's delight, he would wander into the Oval Office with nary a knock. People, we can come to our Heavenly Father, our Abba, 24-7, the God of the universe. God invites you to draw near to his throne of grace in your time of need because you're his child. He loves you. But not only are you just a child, you are a joint heir with Christ. Look at verse 17. Now, if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Because we are the children of God, we have incredible spiritual wealth. We are heirs of God. He is our Father, and we will inherit the kingdom with him. If you're a believer here today, do you have any idea how wealthy you are spiritually? I'm not talking about prosperity theology here. I'm talking about spiritual wealth. The richest couple in the world is Bill and Melinda Gates. They have a net worth of over $75 billion dollars. They have three children. Because they are the heirs, they are positioned to inherit billions of dollars. Do you know how much a billion dollars is? If you spent $10,000 a day, it would take you 300 years to spend a billion dollars. Some of you are saying, well, I'm willing to give it a try. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ. Your wealth is incalculable. You're a spiritual zillionaire. You know what a zillion is? I didn't know what it is either. I looked it up. An extremely large and definite number. <laughs> That's why the Apostle Paul would say this in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I like how Charles Stanley defines biblical wealth. He says, biblical wealth is the ability to experience and enjoy the presence of God. Are you rich toward God? The Holy Spirit testifies that as children of God, we are heirs of God. We have continual access to him and are the recipients of incredible blessings. But look at the last part of verse 17. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. People, the Spirit also assures us that when we suffer, it's not meaningless. We suffer with Christ so we can someday share in his glory. Dr. Ryan Lister, professor at the seminary I attended, said this, 
So when pain and sorrow come into our life, we, we do well to remember this. God is in the midst of suffering. It's only when I survey the wondrous cross that I see that Christ's sorrow and love flow mingled down. Christ enters our pain-filled world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Suffering, from this Christ-centered perspective, is part and parcel of the gospel and therefore part and parcel of our hope. We are not alone, my friends. God has given us his spirit to guide, empower, comfort, and encourage us. He's been called alongside to help us in our Christian life. So as the Apostle Paul reminds us, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. It's so encouraging and very challenging. But I pray that each one of us this morning will re-surrender our life to you. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit that you have given to us, Lord, as our comforter and counselor. May we draw upon that power as we live by faith. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's not sure whether the Holy Spirit's in them, whether they know you, I pray they will come to the prayer room or come to one of us afterwards so we can share with them how they can become children of God. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it empowers and inspires us. I just pray that you'll bless us now as we go out into the mission field this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.